Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. Then there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them not to tell anyone about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Well, today we are concluding one season of the church year and preparing to move on to the next. It is fitting, I think, that everything shut down for us last year during the season of Lent. And some people say this feels like it has been a year-long Lent. But before Lent, of course, come Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. We think about Advent in many ways as a counterpart to Epiphany. Advent is a series of darkness, a series, uh, a time of year where we are awaiting the light that will come in Christ. For example, at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4, Matthew points out that Jesus leaving Nazareth, going to Capernaum by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, is fulfilling what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This light of course, is what, is what Epiphany is all about. We move from darkness of Advent to the light of Epiphany because of that great feast of Christmas, which we love so much we take 12 days to celebrate it. Now, that passage in Matthew is fulfilling, as he says, Isaiah, where we have a passage we often read around Christmas time. Isaiah's passage starts off with what Matthew quotes, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And Isaiah goes on to say this, You have enlarged the nation. And increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. What's fascinating to me when I read this is that the writer, uh, prophet Isaiah, is speaking to his people. He's speaking to the people Israel, God's own people, describing them as living in the shadow, land of the shadow of death, walking in darkness and about to see a great light. And yet when Matthew cites this, it seems that he is talking in a sense about how Jesus' coming brings light, not just to God's own people, but to the nations. Those are kind of mashed together in the nunc dimittis, which we heard just less than two weeks ago on the Feast of the Presentation, that great, uh, great poem of, of Simeon who had been waiting for Messiah to come. He had been waiting in the temple, and he finally sees Jesus as he's presented by his parents, and he says, Lord, now let us to thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast declared before the face of all people, to be a light, to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of thy people Israel. So in 2 Corinthians then, when Paul says that this confidence is ours through Christ before God, God's made us confident, competent, as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And therefore, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel of Christ, gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, we don't preach ourselves, Paul says. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord ourselves as servants for His sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul there is taking this story of what God has done all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the very beginning of the story where God says, Yehior, let there be light. So God brings light to those who are in darkness. And this is only bad news if you insist that you don't need any light. If you're fumbling around in the darkness and you think you don't need any help, you can go on and bark your shins across all the coffee tables you want to. But when you are willing to say, yes, I need some illumination, then this light becomes good news. So if Advent is a season of darkness and Epiphany a season of light, I guess we could say that Lent and Easter are seasons of death and life. I mean, Easter is all about life. 
But I don't think that's exactly how we ought to look at it. I, I would rather say that if Easter is a series, or is a season about eternal life, immortality, then Lent is a season about mortality. It's a season when we recognize and in a sense dwell within an awareness that we are mortal, that we are quite simply going to die. There's a great tradition of the church called memento mori. It's a Latin phrase which means remember your death. On Ash Wednesday in a few days, I will stand here and I will preach as I always do on Ash Wednesday, a chapter of Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ, which is one of the most depressing passages of Christian literature and history, if that's where you're going to leave it. Of course, we know that's not where we leave it, but we need to get there to understand why it is such a great thing for us to be released from that mortality. During Lent, we veil our icons, we veil the processional crosses, not because we are pretending that they're not there, but there's a sense in which we're making them unavailable to us, in which we're, we're shielding their beauty and their glory. We're blocking that from ourselves for a time. We bury our alleluias. We don't say alleluia during our services, except if we have a funeral. The same thing, the hallelujahs are still there. We still would say hallelujah, praise to God, but we don't do it in that way. We restrain ourselves from it. Traditionally, Christians will apply themselves to certain disciplines during the season of Lent. Sometimes discipline of engagement where you begin doing something like praying a certain prayer every day or a couple of times a day. Maybe you'll discipline yourself to give alms, to, to give additional funds away to those who are in need. Other disciplines involve disciplines of abstinence, abstaining from things that, that you enjoy, abstaining even from things that you would normally need, and experiencing the absence of those things as something that points you to God, points you to asking God to fulfill you, to fill you in the places that you need to be filled. These are disciplines that we use, in a sense, to kind of pull down the shades. We pull the, draw the curtains and maybe just let a, a crack of light through. And that discipline is that shaft of light that points out something that we need to bring to God, places in our lives where we have to examine whether we are living according to our mortal nature, our sinful nature, rather than according to the death of Christ, which we'd entered into in baptism. And here at St. Andrew's, we will be pursuing a particular discipline during our preaching in Lent, and that we will be going through a series on memento mori, a series in which we remember our death and we think about what it means for us to live in light of that reality. How does the fact that we are mortal affect the way 
we think about death in the first place? How does it think about the way we think about the process of dying, the decisions we make about how we want to be cared for in our final days? How does our awareness of the fact of our mortality affect the way we want for our lives to be recognized in our funerals? Do we want them to be about us? Or do we want them to be about the work of Jesus in us? How does our awareness of mortality affect the way that we handle our affairs, what we want to have done with our possessions after we die? And in many ways, most importantly, how does the fact of our mortality affect the way we handle immortality? How does the reality that our days are numbered affect the way we think about eternity. Those are the things we're going to be working through by God's grace throughout the sermon series during Lent. And I look forward to hearing from you what God has to say to His people about these things and through His holy word. Amen.